Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. If you're using one of the Bibles in the pews, uh, Exodus 2 is on page 46 there, and we will be reading verses 23 to 25. Just a couple of weeks ago, we started a study in this great book um, that will take us probably till the end of October or so, uh, depending on how things go. But we're just looking at three verses this morning. If you noticed, if, you, if this is your first time here, you wouldn't have noticed any changes. If you, this is not your first time here, you may have noticed a number of things changed in uh, the foyer and around in different places, and uh, I will not name them all now because I don't think they want to actually be named, but I will say that I know who you are who have been uh, so very busy working day and night and uh, long hours and all the creativity and all the work that has gone into just freshening up and creating more spaces for us to actually fellowship with one another and show hospitality to those who are uh, new to us. And so uh, I hope that you will take advantage of this. Uh, It is not meant to just be seen, the seating. It is meant to be sat on, and it is meant to, there are meant to be conversations around those tables, and uh, that's what these things are for. I'm also glad to tell you that the Lyft, if you're not on Facebook, the Lyft uh, uh, project is in process. Uh, we're getting there. It took longer to get here than we thought. It'll take longer to get to the finish line than we thought, but we will get there. We are not the hare. We are the tortoise, but we will get there, all right? So, uh, thankful for those who have invested time and energy and effort in that as well. Um, So, I just want to read these last three verses and then pray and ask for the Lord's help as we think about what they teach, and then we'll dive in. This is what the Lord says. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Let's pray. Our Father, what a privilege it is to come before you in prayer, to know that as your children, that we have the, the ear of the King of the universe. We have the ear of the one who is our God. We pray today, Lord, that you would come and speak through these words that you have given to us that we might see their truth and love it and believe it, that we might live differently because of what these verses teach us. We pray your church will be strengthened. We pray those who don't know Jesus will come to know him, will be convicted by your word today. And we pray that your servant, 
who seeks to preach will be strengthened by your spirit. We ask all of this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. When it comes to prayer, it has often rightly been said that God is not a genie. That we ought not to come to prayer with the notion that if we rub the lamp of prayer in the right way, God the genie will appear and do what we want when we want. Not only is that wrong when we look to the pages of the Bible, quite frankly, you know it from your own experience, don't you? You know that you've prayed, and God has not been the genie running to attend to that very thing at that very moment. You have known that. And yet, the Bible, Jesus tells us that we ought to pray, and that, that God does actually answer. So, we hear in the Sermon on the Mount, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. And then in a few verses, Jesus says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Now, this is good and encouraging and needed for all of us. But there are times, aren't there, when we desperately need God's help, when we feel we must see Him work here. We need Him to intervene, whether it's in our society, whether it's in our family, whether it's in our own lives. We're suffering we're in pain, we're miserable, and the darkness just won't lift. And so we pray, we ask, we seek, we knock. But it's been days, it's been weeks, it's been months, it's, it's been years. It's, it's as if my prayer is knocking, but I'm wondering if anyone is at home. It seems like my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling, as, as if maybe when I go to pray, God hits the mute button. In those times, in those seasons, when it's been that long, what are we to do? When the darkness doesn't seem to be lifting at all, what is it that we are to think? Where are we to find hope? Is there actually hope there? Well, the good news is that there is. And we actually see that hope here in these last few verses of Exodus 2, in this last paragraph of two chapters that have really been setting the stage for what will happen in the rest of this great book. And I want us to think about what is said here under two headings, actually. First, that God's people pray, and secondly, that God responds. So first, God's people pray. Now, in case you've forgotten, these are dark days for the people of Israel, for the descendants of Abraham. They had first come to Egypt looking for food because famine had struck. But now they are in slavery, suffering under Pharaoh's thumb. Their burdens 
are heavy. Their lives are bitter. Their taskmasters are brutal. Their baby boys' lives are being threatened by the government. And there is no light at the end of their tunnel. According to verse 23 there, it says, it's been many days. Well, how long does that mean, many days? Well, if you look back at the beginning of chapter 2, in verse 2, Moses is born. In verse 15, he leaves Egypt and goes to Midian. And later in the Bible, we find out he's 40 years old when that happens. And in that same place later, in Acts 7, we learn he's not coming back for 40 more years. And this didn't get established. This whole policy, all this darkness did not come on with Moses' birth. It was before that. So it's been at least 80 years of darkness. It's been many days. It seems like a bit of an understatement, doesn't it? It's been many days. Verse 23 also tells us that the king of Egypt has died. This is the king who instituted this oppressive policy. He is now dead. And it's possible that the people think, well, now that that king is dead, maybe something will change. You can see them, can't you? You can see that group of men at the McDonald's early in the morning with their coffee. And they're sitting around and they're talking to one another. And one of them says to the other, well, you know, if we could just, if this guy would just get out of office things will get so much better. Life will be better. Doesn't sound much different than many of us, does it? Because some percentage of Americans every four years thinks that whatever is going to happen in the election could actually fix what went wrong with the last guy. But if they were sitting in their McDonald's and sipping their coffee and thinking that, you know what happened? Nothing. They still suffer. There's still oppression. There's still affliction. There's still pain. There's still death threats. All of it stays. And Moses? Well, he's in Midian. He's got a good job. He's got a wife. He's got a baby boy. He doesn't have to hide from the death squad. He's pretty settled there for now. But things are anything but settled here in Egypt. Proverbs 29 says, When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. And that is what these people are doing. They groan, they cry, they shriek, they sigh, they scream for help to God in prayer. Now you see that kind of sounds odd to us, doesn't it? We don't think of prayer that way. We think of prayer as a quiet thing. You know, you have your heads bowed and your eyes closed and you have your hands folded and it's a whispered prayer. But these prayer meetings are not filled with whispered prayers. These prayer meetings are loud. 
They are full of tears. They are full of pain. They are full of anguish. They are full of urgency. You see, these folks don't leave the Sunday night prayer meeting with a handshake and a smile and small talk about the week to come or bemoaning the Colts' choice of quarterbacks. This is not how they leave the prayer meeting. You know how they leave the prayer meeting? They leave it exhausted. They have no energy left. They may not even have a voice left. They've been crying out. They've been wailing. They are completely poured out before the Lord. They are empty. And this kind of praying is not a one-time occurrence. These words are used in other places to describe the prayers of the people of God, particularly in the Psalms. I'll just read a few examples. Psalm 142, with my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. Psalm 18, in my distress, I called upon the Lord. Psalm 88, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Psalm 102, hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. The crying, the shrieking, the groaning of the people in Exodus 2 continually goes up to heaven. The pain of their condition, the darkness of their days streams from their lips. And I wonder, do you know this kind of need for God? Have you felt this kind of weight, this aching? You see, some people will reduce Christianity to mere intellectualism. Yes, we just we have our doctrines and we have our books and we parse the Hebrew and we parse the Greek and we have our systematic theologies and we, and we do and we don't do and we do and we don't do. Now look, none of that is absent from Christianity. Christianity is a very intellectually stimulating faith when you come to the Bible. However, fundamentally, what happens when you become a Christian is not that you become an intellectual. What happens when you become a Christian is that your soul is awakened to something. Your soul is awakened to your need for God, to your need for His grace, your need for His mercy, your need for His intervention. And not just at that one moment. It starts a whole spring of needs a whole thirst that you can quench but not quench. You just have to keep drinking over and over again because you find you get thirsty over and over and over again. Do you know your neediness for God? Are you awake to that? Do you know that you're hopeless and that you're helpless apart from the Lord? Do you know what it is to be desperate for the Lord to act? for the Lord to help. Have you ever prayed in this way? Now, don't go excusing yourself because you say you have faith. Well, you know, Toby, I actually believe in the sovereignty of God, and so I don't pray this way. I pray very cold, calculated prayers and whispered tones. You'd never say that. (laughs) But somehow we think a belief in the sovereignty of God somehow replaces this desperation. 
It actually should fuel it. Because we know that unless God works, nothing's going to happen. And so we go to him pleading, begging, crying, groaning. Faith is not a substitute for desperation. I mean, that would be a claim to have more faith, say, than the Syrophoenician woman in the, in the Gospels who came to the Lord. You remember her? And Jesus says, well, you know, only the children get to sit at the table. The dogs have to be outside because she was a Gentile. But this woman wouldn't take no for an answer. And she says, but, but the, the dogs at least get the crumbs from the table. And Jesus commends her for her faith because she is desperate for Jesus to intervene with her demon-possessed girl. It's a claim to have more faith than Paul who struggles with his thorn in the flesh such that he is calling out continually for God to remove it, remove the thorn in the flesh. It's a claim to trust the Lord, say, more than the Lord Jesus himself who said in the Garden of Gethsemane that his soul was in anguish even unto death. He is sweating drops of blood and he is saying three times if it is possible for this to be taken. Beware of claiming faith as a replacement for desperation because a heart, beware of a heart that never feels need. Beware of a heart that never groans. Beware of a heart that never longs. I mean, Paul says in Romans 8, our whole bodies groan and long for the day. Beware because such coldness is not the mark of a Christian who knows his God, her God. It's not actually the mark of a Christian to just be cold, to never feel need. God's people pray not merely because it is commanded or because it is expected, but because it is felt. Because the Christian soul knows it won't make it without God. And these folks in Exodus 2 know they won't make it. And so they pray. These aren't just general moans and general groans. Samuel's going to stand before the people of Israel in 1 Samuel 12, and he's going to give his farewell address, and he's going to recall this event, and he's going to say, they cried to the Lord. They didn't just waft up to heaven. They were aimed. Do you know what it is to pray that way? You know what it is to know that you have no solution. You have no remedy in yourself. You have no wisdom that is sufficient for this moment and that God must act or you are without hope. That's where they are. And then we see that God responds. 
You see, what we have here is not simply a picture of desperation uh, and prayer, but we have a promise. We have a reminder that God responds when His people pray. There are three words I'll use to describe God's response here. The first is compassion. Compassion. He responds in compassion. Listen to these words. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God heard. God saw. God knew. God is not distant. He's not on vacation. He's not busy with the other world events of the day. His ears aren't plugged. His eyes aren't closed. He's not unaware of their suffering. I mean, that's what it's tempting to think, isn't it? When the pain gets to a certain depth, if the darkness gets dark enough, if the suffering lasts long enough, I mean, especially if you prayed, right? Doubts may stir. Questions may bubble up to the surface of your soul. You may find yourself echoing David's words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. But whatever questions may come, friend, whatever we may feel about the presence of God or feel about the absence of God, these verbs come swooping in to remind us that God cares. He hears. He sees. He knows. If you peek over to, uh, just go to the next chapter, chapter 3, verse 7, God will now make it explicit. This isn't just the narrator's conclusion. God actually says it to Moses, chapter 3, verse 7. Then the Lord said to him, I have surely seen the affliction of, the, of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And then later, as Moses is preparing the people to enter the promised land, he recalls that moment. He recalls the compassionate heart of God in Deuteronomy 26 when he says, And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression." Friend, wherever it is that you are, whatever it is that you are facing, whatever the heartache, whatever the hardship, whatever the trial, whatever the suffering, no matter what it is, if you belong to God, if Christ is your Savior and God is your Father, His heart has not grown cold to you. He sees. He hears. He knows. God is compassionate. But His response shows not only His compassion, His response points to His covenant. His covenant. 
Now, God's compassion is wonderful, isn't it? It's always wonderful to have a compassionate friend. But imagine having a compassionate friend who sees your struggle and hears your struggle and knows your struggle and is pained by your struggle but can do nothing about it and will do nothing about it. I mean, how helpful is that? Well, it may have gotten you through coffee, but it's not going to get you through the problem, right? Well, God is not like that. God sees and He hears and He knows, but He is also committed to them. He has under no obligation, there was no obligation on God to make a covenant with anybody, to give Himself to anybody, and yet He has given Himself. Listen, He says, God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Now, a covenant is something that formally establishes a relationship between two parties, all right? So, uh, not many people speak this way, but when we come as man and wife to come together in marriage, we make a covenant. We vow to one another. Uh, in a more, uh, in a broader sense, some of you live in neighborhoods where you have HOA covenants, where you as the homeowner agree to certain responsibilities with the neighborhood. So it can be between people, these covenants, but here it's God's covenant established with Abraham. Now you can read God initially promising Abraham in Genesis 12, and then He repeats it a number of times what He will do for him. He make, God makes several promises to Abraham, but here's the point. Most of those promises haven't been kept yet. And they won't be kept so long as the people of Israel are in slavery in Egypt. And here God tells us, I mean, Moses tells us, God remembered His covenant. Now, that word remember may be confusing to you because what does that mean? Well, in the Bible, it can actually mean just to recall information that you forgot. It can mean that. Like you drive all the way home today and then remember you should have eaten lunch. All right? Now, none of you may have that problem. I have obviously never had that problem, but some people probably claim to have that problem. All right? But you get somewhere and you realize, oh, I forgot. I, was I just remembered I was supposed to stop at the store. Let me jump back in the car and go. That can, I mean, it is used that way in the Bible, but that's not actually how we should understand it here. God actually never loses grip on any information ever. He is all-knowing. And He never forgets His people. He is faithful. Isaiah 49 says, Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. So if, God, if God's memory hasn't slipped, and if He's not forgotten His people, what can this mean? Well, what it means is that God brings it up, brings it up again to the forefront because He's about to act. He brings it into view to act on it. That's what it means for God to remember. So when God promises in Jeremiah that He will remember their sin no more, He's not saying He's going to self-induce amnesia. He's saying He's not going to bring it up to act on it against you ever again. That's actually better than God having amnesia because what it means is God knows exactly what you have done. 
but he will not remember it against you. All right? So God remembers his covenant. He brings this up. God brings it up so that he might act on it. God has not stopped caring about his people. God has not stopped being committed to his people. Now, I want to take you down a brief side note because I want you to notice what happened. What is it that brought God into the situation and to the forefront if you just read the text? Prayer did. It's amazing how this is written, isn't it? I mean, we've come through two chapters where God has been virtually absent. I mean, we have had to use our eyes of faith and what we know about God from the whole Bible in order to look at those two chapters because He's not the main player on the stage. But prayer calls God to the main stage, as it were. Prayer puts the spotlight on Him, puts Him in the spotlight. You see, back in Genesis, and here's the thing. Back in Genesis 15, God promised Abraham, hey, they're going to, he said, Abraham, your descendants are going to be in a foreign nation. They're going to be afflicted there. It's going to be 430 years, but then I am going to bring them out. I'm going to punish that nation and bring them out. In Genesis 46, God says to Jacob, I am going to be with you when you're there, and I am going to bring your people out again. God had already promised He is going to do it. His sovereign plan was already set. The people will be rescued. Nothing made God promise that, and nothing will keep God from keeping that promise. He is sovereign, and yet the way this is written makes it sound like nothing happened until the people prayed. Did you notice that? You just straightforward reading of the text. Why would it be written? As if they had come along and jogged God's memory. Now, I think it is written this way in order to underscore the importance of our praying. Not to underscore God's forgetfulness or God's inability to keep promises unless we do X, Y, or Z, but to underscore our place in God's purposes. You see, God doesn't just ordain the end, the salvation, the rescue. He ordains the means, the groaning, the crying, the praying. In fact, He has ordained that His purposes will be carried forward through the prayers of His people. So there is a sense in which we can say, God will not work in this church. God will not work in your life. God will not work in this city. God will not work in our nation. God will not work in the world unless we pray. You do not have because you do not ask. One commentator put it this way, this moment. Our prayers are so effective and delightful in his ears that God condescends to accommodate his eternal, sovereign, providential working to what we can understand as though to say, oh, thank you for reminding me. Do you consider prayer that important? 
Because when it came to Hezekiah later, God had already determined that his life would be extended, but then Hezekiah prays. And do you know what God says to Hezekiah? Well, Hezekiah, you didn't really need to pray because I had already ordained that your life would be extended by 15 years. That was a waste of breath. No, no, no. He says, because you have prayed. Now, wait a second. Doesn't God understand systematic theology? Doesn't he understand what sovereignty means? Doesn't, what, no, 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 friend. What God wants us to understand is that he has ordained that his purposes will be carried forward and carried out through our praying. God uses means. I wonder, I truly wonder in the last 25, 30 years, how important prayer has been to the local church. Because it begins by saying, well, we don't, we don't really need to come together to pray, right? I mean, we don't need to come to, I can pray at home. I can just pray at home. Pray by myself. I can pray there just as well as I can pray here. And we ignore the entire biblical testimony that most of these prayers are prayed together. And even the solitary prayers that are recorded in the book of Psalms, you know what they are meant to be? The prayers of God's people. The songs of God's people. We ignore the fact that the times in which God refines and revives his church, the way that he works and builds and strengthens. When you look at church history and you look at the times of revival, you know what are connected to those things? Not just, you know, one person in one closet somewhere praying. It is God's people praying together. What we need to do is stop complaining about what's going on in the world and go before the one together who can do something about it. That's what we must be doing. But we don't. We offer up our solutions and we post it on Facebook and we post it on Twitter and we complain about it over coffee at McDonald's early in the morning. And that's all we're interested in doing. Because God's sovereign, he can take care of it anytime he wants to. Well, friend, have you ever stopped to think that God may want to take care of it through you and I being together praying? How dare we undervalue that which God places great value on? One more thing about God's response. We don't just see his compassion. We don't just see his covenant. But for the moment, we see that his response is concealed. Now, friend, we're looking at it, right? We're sitting right here. You want to raise your hand and say, now, Toby, are you looking at the same Bible I'm looking at? Because when I look at verse 24 and verse 25, I see God's name four times. And God heard, God remembered, God saw, God knew. I'm seeing it. He's right there. Well, that's right. But there's no indication that the people who are at the prayer meeting in Exodus 2 have any clue that God has heard. That God is doing it. They don't know. They, they, they're not going to know for some time. I mean, their days are still dark. They're still going to get up the next morning and go and be under the lash of the taskmasters. Their burdens are still heavy. 
Their bitterness is still present. Their suffering is still going on. You see, they can't tell that their story has turned a corner. But it has, hasn't it? They have no idea that God has now stood up off his throne to do something. But he has. They have no idea that God is going to come and save them. And it is imminent. But he is. They have no notion that their prayer has made all the difference. But it has. The answer is already in motion. God is already at work. They just can't see it. God's going to appear to Moses over in Midian on the backside of a mountain in a burning bush. And you know what they're going to see on the news that night? More taskmasters were hired today. Tomorrow's just going to be more of today, except worse. And here God is revealing himself to Moses and setting things in motion, and they have no clue it's happening. You remember in the book of Daniel? Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is fasting and he's praying because he realizes that God has promised to rescue his people from exile. So he goes before the Lord and he prays. And in response, God sends an angel, Gabriel. I mean, that would be great, right? You finish praying and Gabriel shows up. Gabriel shows up and he says, At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. In other words, when Daniel started praying, he couldn't see God's answer. But, God said, but Gabriel says the answer started unfolding the moment you started praying. Well, now there's something. You need a promise for your prayer life? There you go. Daniel chapter 9, verse 23, the answer begins to unfold. What that answer is, I don't know. When it will come, I don't know. But I know, I know. God's answer may be unfolding even though I can't see it. What we see in Exodus 2 is that the answer is already unfolding even though they can't see it. And friends, we ought to be encouraged by that to not give up praying to not throw in the towel on intercession, to not mark the prayer time off my calendar, especially when it's been a long time and we can't see how God is answering. Don't give up on that circumstance. Don't give up in the fight against sin. Don't give up in your suffering. Don't give up on your lost friend. Don't give up on your wayward son. Don't give up on your wayward daughter. Don't give up on your hard-hearted spouse. Don't give up on the one whom you're discipling who doesn't seem interested right now. Don't give up on evangelism. Don't give up in the midst of opposition. Don't give up. Don't give up when the darkness of life just wants to press you into the ground. Don't give up when the, when the, when the problems and, and issues of life just seem to come at you like, like you're the bag that the boxer's warming up on. Remember the prayer meeting of Exodus 2. 
Remember that God's answer may be unfolding slower than you expected and in ways that you cannot detect right now. Remember that just because you can't see what God is doing doesn't mean He's doing nothing. Walk by faith in this word from God in Exodus 2, not merely by what you can see in your life. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, keep praying, keep crying, keep groaning. Why? Because this text teaches us that God hears and answers the prayers of His suffering people. That truth gives us hope and strength as we live lives full of pain and suffering. But also the message of a God who hears and who sees and who knows and who acts, this is actually the hope of the whole world. You see, the Bible teaches us that there is another slavery, and it is worse and it is darker, and it is more threatening than even the awfulness that we read of here in Exodus 2. It's slavery to sin, and the Bible says all of us are slaves to sin. None of us can get out of it. There is no light at the end of that tunnel. And unlike the pain of slavery, which will at least end at death, The pain and the affliction and the suffering that sin brings on will last forever. And yet God has seen our condition, and He knows it. And in compassion, He sent a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us and rose on the third day. His blood signs the dotted line of a covenant that brings forgiveness of sin, reconciliation with God, eternal life, brings us salvation. And all who turn to Jesus in faith are part of that covenant and enjoy its benefits. They come into an unbreakable relationship with God. God is theirs, and they are God's. And friend, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, that can be you today because Romans 10 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Will. Sin oppresses and afflicts your soul, friend. Cry out to Jesus. Come to Jesus today, now. As a song of a couple of decades ago well said, weak and wounded sinner, lost and left to die, Raise your head, for love is passing by. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and live. And he will hear your cry and groan under sin, and he will save you. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you 
confessing how we have taken for granted the privilege of coming before you. God, we know what it is to suffer in this world due to various circumstances, those we bring on ourselves, those that are brought on us, those that come purely by your providence. God, would you awaken in us our sense of need for you? It is so easy to forget our neediness when all is well, when things are smooth. Would you cause us to know that every hour we need thee? Would you stir in our soul cries and groans for that which matters most? And as we do, and as we wait for you to answer, would you remind us of your compassion, your commitment to us in the new covenant in Jesus' blood, that he who gave up his son for us, how will he not also with him give us all things? That you will never leave us, that you will never forsake us, that even when your answer is concealed, we will trust you. Make us a church that knows this need. And praise and praise. Revive us, O Lord, we ask, for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen.